Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. Today on the show, are we on the road to war? Has the Trump administration been setting things up for a military confrontation with Iran? If they do anything, they will suffer greatly. Then the trade war with China. It has royal markets and it's costing Americans cash. Who will blink, Trump or Xi? You want to know something? We always win. I'll talk to experts on each hotspot. And India's elections are done, and no matter what party wins, we know one thing. Accused crooks will be elected. I'll bring you the stunning findings and their implications for America. Plus, Trump, Putin, Bolsonaro, Orban, Duterte. We know the face of right-wing populism, but what is its opposite? Can liberalism put up a fight? The New Yorker's Adam Gopnik defends the creed. But first, here's my take. Donald Trump has seemed largely uninterested in foreign policy. He got excited briefly when he thought he could win a Nobel Peace Prize and hype the danger of an imminent North Korean attack so he could then play the peacemaker. When it became clear that a deal was not to be had easily, Trump lost interest and scarcely mentions the subject anymore. Beyond North Korea, his foreign policy has largely been one of subcontracting, a familiar style for a real estate developer. Middle East policy is farmed out to Israel and Saudi Arabia. Policy toward left-wing regimes in Latin America, Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua have been delegated to saber-rattlers like John Bolton and Marco Rubio. The rest of Latin America is dealt with solely through the lens of immigration. In other words, subcontracted to Stephen Miller. The one common aspect of Trump's foreign policy, however, has been that abroad it has provoked a vigorous nationalist response. Take China, where the government has gone on the offensive and denounced what it sees as America's aggressive trade demands. Beijing's state-controlled television network recently featured a commentary tying American tactics to previous foreign efforts to subjugate China. After 5,000 years of wind and rain, what hasn't the Chinese nation weathered, the anchor said. If you want a trade war, we'll fight you until the end. In Iran, the Islamic Republic has been able to withstand the economic storms caused by U.S. sanctions so far because it has been able to pin the blame on Trump's anti-Iran strategy, not the regime's economic mismanagement. Washington has always underestimated nationalism, especially in Iran. Many of Iran's foreign policy moves stem from its geopolitical position, not some fundamentalist Shiite ideology. Even allies are becoming more assertive and anti-American. In 2015, before Trump's election, 66% of Mexicans had a favorable view of America. By 2018, that number had dropped to 32%. Confidence in the U.S. president plummeted in that same period 
from 49% to 6%. The pattern recurs almost everywhere. In Canada, confidence in the U.S. president went from 76% in 2015 to 25% in 2018. In France, it's worse, from 83% under Obama to single digits under Trump. In fact, in a recent Pew survey of 25 countries, only two places expressed greater confidence in Trump than they did in his predecessor, Russia and Israel. Yet other countries are simply following Trump's advice. In his 2017 speech to the UN General Assembly, Donald Trump called for a great reawakening of nations, urging countries to use patriotism and self-interest as their sole guides in foreign policy. Trump's North Star has been to celebrate a narrow conception of national interest, reject the idea that there are larger international interests, and by implication, to denigrate the idea of cooperative win-win solutions. The Chinese, the Iranians, and so many others are simply doing what Trump urged. And since the U.S. is still the world's leading power and Trump's style has been aggressive and undiplomatic, the easiest response abroad is a nationalist, anti-American one, feeding public anger, stoking bad historical memories, and locking countries into a win-lose mindset. It's a world with more instability, less cooperation, and fewer opportunities for America. And it is the direct logical consequence of Donald Trump's philosophy of America first. For more, go to cnn.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Will the heightened tensions between the United States and Iran lead to war? And what would it mean if there were actual hostilities? These questions are on people's minds all around the world. Let's try to get answers from today's guests, both of whom have reported extensively on and in Iran. Robin Wright is a contributing writer to The New Yorker. Her book on Iran is The Last Great Revolution. Jim Shudo is CNN's chief national security correspondent and the author of a terrific new book, The Shadow War, Inside Russia and China's Secret Operation to Defeat America. We will get to that, Jim, but first let me ask you, what is going on? It seemed as though the administration, John Bolton, the national security advisor, Mike Pompeo, was setting up a kind of aggressive series of, of moves that were essentially designed to provoke the Iranians or confront the Iranians. And then the president said, wait a minute, I don't, I don't want war. Whiplash, right? I mean, think in the span of those two weeks, a clear and present danger requiring the deployment of an additional carrier group. I mean, this is the most uh, powerful weapon in America's military arsenal when you think about it, the aircraft carrier and all the ships and submarines that come with it. Great alarm. And now the president in the span of that time now saying, I don't want war. Let's find a way to talk. Uh, as happens with so many things in this administration with foreign policy or national security issues or threats, was there any discussion of a broader policy here? Was there a consensus built within the administration over this? Doesn't appear because the fissures have been playing out very much in the public eye. The president's comments versus the comments of his secretary of state and his national security advisor. It leaves the American public with, with legitimate questions as to what the policy is, but also America's allies and adversaries, which, of course, increases the risk of misunderstanding. Uh, and we're seeing this play out in front of us in real time. Uh, Robin, it, it seems as though President Trump was not aware that Mike Pompeo 
very, had a, has had a longstanding, very hardline view on Iran that has essentially been about regime change, but that John Bolton in particular has had these, these very longstanding and very hardline views on Iran. Well, there's clearly a split within the administration over what their end goal is. Uh, John Bolton has had a longstanding relationship with the Iranian opposition. He's talked about regime change. He wrote an op-ed in The New York Times saying it was time to bomb Iran. This is before taking uh, his current job. So he has talked about a counter-revolution, basically, whereas uh, Mike Pompeo, who had talked about regime change, has kind of modified that view at the State Department, more in line with President Trump's view that uh, you want to see a change in behavior. But he's issued 12 demands that often amount to regime change. The president, on the other hand, has talked about he's willing to talk to the supreme leader. They've reached out to uh, the Iranians since President Trump took office uh, almost a dozen times. So I think that they all agree on what they don't want to see in Iran. But the question is, what do they ultimately want to see proactively or creatively in terms of happening in Tehran itself. And that, I think, has led to a real gap. And that's why you've seen this breathtaking buildup suddenly to the potential of war. And now uh, this beginning of a kind of pullback. How do we avoid a war? The danger, of course, is how do you de-escalate once you reach this point? And that, I think, is the challenge for both sides today. Uh, Jim, it seems to me that the way you de-escalate is in the Trump administration is Trump just changes the subject. I mean, he, he did this with North Korea, where he, he hyped up the threat, then realized he wasn't going to get the Nobel Peace Prize. So all of a sudden, this, the situation is the same, that Venezuela, you know, they drew a red line saying Maduro had to go. Maduro didn't go, so he just suddenly we've stopped talking about Venezuela. Is that likely that we'll just, this will just go away? The president frequently declares victory where there is no victory and where the facts don't support it. And it does get to fundamental questions to the president's foreign policy here because he has tried this same tactic, as you noted, but also on China, right? Maximum economic pressure to get the North Koreans to abandon nukes, to get to China, to fundamentally change its economic model, an unfair one, but one that appears to be, from its perspective, in China's national security interests, now to get Iran back to renegotiate a nuclear deal that it's showing no intention of renegotiating, at least today, Trump's approach to all those issues, as well as Venezuela, appears to have failed. So what is the plan B? They've certainly articulated no, no alternative to Trump's policy. So the president may claim victory or success where there isn't, uh, but the world is left with the consequences of that just not being supported by the facts. Mm. Robin, what, did, what do the Iranians do? They are feeling the pressure. The Iranian economy is reeling. It's uh, going to contract 6% this year. Can they make trouble or are they too weak at this point? I don't think Iran is weak at all. It clearly has very strong presence across the Middle East. It has proxies who have been operating in Lebanon, Iraq, uh, Yemen, Syria. You know, they still are major players, even if they are feeling the economic pinch. They're uh, the and they do feel the economic pinch. Uh, the oil has gone down from 3.2 million barrels a day to under 1 million barrels a day, and they are going to feel this long term. But the, the challenge now is they have issued a, a deadline for the Europeans to help bail them out of the sanction squeeze of 60 days, or they may, they threaten, pull back even more from the steps promised in the Iran nuclear deal. Iran is still complying. Uh, and of course, five of the six major powers engaged in the deal still believe in it, still support it. Uh, the question is, are we setting up some benchmarks down the road that will lead to further escalation, even if there is a pullback at the, um, at the moment on the kind of military steps? So this is still very much a live, uh, a live situation. 
Um, one of the things Iran could do uh, is get active on the cyberspace. Mm-hmm. And this is the subject of your new book. I want to ask you, uh, leave Iran aside, just tell us what is the main thing, this terrific book about cyber war, how the Chinese and the Russians are both very actively engaged in it. What, what do you think is the principal message you want to get out of the book? My principal message is this. That I think that Americans are generally aware of one front of what is a much broader war. They're aware of, for instance, Russian interference in the election or Chinese theft of, of state secrets, which has been so central to the president's uh, trade war with China today. But the fact is there are many other fronts on which China and Russia are attacking the U.S. and the West on a daily basis and with great effect. Uh, they're illegal land acquisition, occupation of territory in Ukraine, annexation, China creating whole new territory in the South China Sea in in areas claimed by other powers. Americans, I I don't think, by and large, are aware that both Russia and China have deployed weapons in space designed to take away essential space assets that the U.S. military, but also civilian world, depends on because they know we have such great dependence. And I should note that, that Iran and North Korea watch China and Russia as well. They don't have the same resources, but they use similar tactics in cyberspace. They use it in space. They use it on the ground. And this is part of a strategy. It is not by accident. It's an explicit strategy that both Russia and China are using. They call them by different names. Drasimov doctrine by the Russians. Winning without fighting is how the Chinese refer refer to it. And when you look at the results of this war so far, they have made gains. And the fact is the U.S. has only recently recognized this shadow war, as I call it, but is still trying to discern a strategy to effectively respond to it. So it's a kind of asymmetrical war that we are much less aware of than they are. Absolutely. And also designed to uh, attack the U.S. and the West just below the threshold of sparking a kinetic reaction, a military reaction from the U.S. And they've been very smart in in their sort of spidey sense, as it were, in detecting uh, how far they can go without the U.S. reacting. I mean, look, look, Russia's occupying a European country, sovereign state, Ukraine. China has, you know, in the face of repeated American protests, created new territories, uh, taking away territory, in in effect, from U.S. allies. They've interfered in an election, Russia has. They've deployed space assets. What has the American response been? Some sanctions here, some sanctions there have not fundamentally changed either country's behavior. That's a failure by any other definition. Jim, fascinating book. Thank you. Thank you. Robin Wright, always a pleasure. Thank you. Next on GPS, the United States is already in a war, a trade war with China. But what is the end game? I'll be back in a moment to discuss. On Tuesday, President Trump diminished the seriousness of the trade war with China, calling it a little squabble. But despite his attempts to downplay it, the two sides are at an impasse. And in the meantime, American consumers are paying a price, as White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow admitted last weekend, contradicting and reportedly upsetting his boss. So how does the trade war end? We have a terrific panel to discuss. Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister of Australia and current President of the Asia Society Policy Institute. He joins us from Beijing. Michael Pillsbury has been described by President Trump as the leading authority on China. He's Director for China Strategy at the Hudson Institute. And Rana Farua is a CNN Global Economic Analyst and a Global Business Columnist for the Financial Times. Mike, let me start with you. Um, you, you have sure. influenced the president a great deal. In fact, you wrote a piece arguing uh, that one of the core demands of the U.S. Uh, position be, be you, you, I think, originated the idea, which is that the tariffs stay in place until you see 
Chinese compliance with the with the trade deal because in the past they have cheated. So from your point of view, is the U.S. position tenable and is it the right one? Well, don't forget the president's goal for the long term is zero tariffs, uh, increased trade between the U.S. and China, increased investment by the U.S. in China and China in the U.S. That's that's the grand strategy here to improve overall relations with China, not to have a new Cold War and not to have a trade war. But to get to that overall goal, there's been a number of steps taken to uh, get China's attention because, as President Trump sort of joked, uh, President Obama let them get away with murder. President Trump's also, Fareed, on, has some pressure from his own Democrats from the left. Uh, Bernie, as we call him, wants to have a currency manipulation label for China. Uh, seven senators wrote a letter to President Trump warning him not to be tough. Uh, Chuck Schumer, the Senate leader, of the Democrats, uh, March 2nd, did a tweet chastising President Trump for not raising the tariffs that day to 25 percent. So we have a complicated political situation here in in many ways. Um, Kevin, what Michael described as the complicated political situation uh, in the United States, which is keeping uh, President Trump on a a pretty tough line with with, uh, China, seems to be mirrored in in China, where you are right now. The New York Times has uh, superb reporting out that suggests that um, when the Chinese side finally translated the document, uh, the trade deal, uh, into Chinese and circulated among the leadership, Xi Jinping, the president of China, found that there was more pushback, that there uh, there was more opposition to it, and so changed instructions at the last minute. He had essentially said, approve the deal, and he vetoed it. That seems like... Uh, Chinese, you know, Chinese politics at work. Is that right? Well, um, Farid, here in Beijing, I don't get a daily briefing on what the Politburo is doing. And so ultimately, we don't know the detail of China's internal processes. But the key question is this, going to China's own politics on the question of trade negotiations with the US. There is a particular provision in the US negotiating position, as at least as reported, which the Chinese have found obnoxious and unacceptable. And that is a provision which says uh, that if in the future the United States judges that China is not honouring the terms of the agreement, uh, then the United States can unilaterally uh, impose punitive tariffs against China, but also in the same agreement requiring that China would under no circumstances then retaliate. Now, all I'd say in response to that is if the United States was in a trade negotiation with me as the Prime Minister of Australia, I would find that absolutely unacceptable. Um, And I'm not surprised the Chinese find it unacceptable. I still think there's a way through these negotiations, but the United States has to think through its own position on this as well. Uh, Rana, what's striking to me looking at it uh, from from, um, the U.S. domestic point of view is President Trump is putting tariffs, the Chinese are retaliating. Mm. Those tariffs are hurting Trump's supporters much more than anyone else, farmers in in the Midwest, small manufacturers, but they are staying with him. The New York Times, again, has terrific reporting that says these people say we're willing to take this price because we're taking the long view. The Chinese have been stealing our uh, intellectual property. Uh, it, it, It seems like there is nationalism at play here that is supporting President Trump's position. I think that's absolutely right. It's interesting because of the 10 states that are going to be most affected, eight of them voted for Trump. So the president's playing a pretty high stakes game. But as you point out, 
farmers are with him. It's interesting. I spent some time looking at a supply chain in the Carolinas, and I spoke to a cotton farmer that had calculated down to the penny what it was costing him. But he said he was still with the president. And he pointed out, as did many small businesses, manufacturers in that state, that, look, they're just happy someone is pointing out the flaws and, in some cases, the hypocrisies of the last 20 years of trade where America said, all right, as long as you let us export Coke and, and banking services, you can send us all the cheap clothes from China that you want. And that's created concentrated areas of pain in the U.S. Those are the places that voted for President Trump. And it's interesting because, as Michael pointed out, um, there's an interesting far right, far left overlap in these policies. Yes. Um, I hear a lot of people on the far left saying, actually, maybe we do need more of a local ecosystem. I would also say I don't think we're going to reset no matter who's in, in the White House in 2020. I don't think we're going to reset to business as usual. China itself is like the U.S. post-World War II. It is a really big single-language market with plenty of room to grow. They're building their own ecosystem. They have their own smartphones that sell better than Apple. So you may see more of a, a bipolar or even a tripolar world, depending on how Europe plays out. Uh, we will get to exactly this point when we come back. Beyond the specifics of the trade war, what is the world going to look like? A new Cold War with China? A bipolar world? What? When we return. And we are back with Kevin Rudd in Beijing, Michael Pillsbury in Washington, and Rana Faruha here in New York. Uh, Kevin, I wanted to ask you about, again, what the Chinese reaction uh, to, to the Trump uh, strategy has been. Because it strikes me that Donald Trump is approaching it from the point of view of what he often calls uh, his kind of America first strategy, a kind of nationalist strategy. There's a lot of patriotic support for him among his base, the support of the, the far left. But the Chinese are also reacting, it seems to me, uh, from their nationalist point of view. Their reaction has been very much a kind of don't tread on me uh, nationalism, has it not? Well, I think, um, Fareed, there's often an assumption in the U.S. that it's just America that's got to deal with its domestic politics on trade policy. But guess what? The Chinese have politics too. It's called party politics. 86 million members of the Chinese Communist Party. And they do have internal debates. Now, the core point here is in the politics of China right now, which is just celebrating the 100th anniversary of something called the May the 4th movement, which Mr Pillsbury would know all about. Um, it's a highly nationalist period to do with the rise of Chinese nationalism 100 years ago in response to external pressure from foreign powers. I find it highly significant that China in response to this latest twist in the Trump administration's trade policy is now itself going down the nationalist road and saying, here we are drawing a line in the sand. It's going to make an agreement harder uh, rather than easier. And I go back to the overall purpose of a strategy on the part of the US or anybody else, which is to bring about a change in the other side's negotiating behaviour. I'm not sure that's being achieved. Is that not a fair point that I, I, I find myself... Yes. Uh, quite sympathetic to, to some of the things <laughs> President Trump says about China, uh, even the strategy in terms of getting their attention. But in all his negotiations with foreign countries, he he doesn't give them a win-win option. He it, it seems like he, you know, if you think about NAFTA, he wants to humiliate the other side. And it's very hard for the other side to take that because they have domestic politics as well. Uh, you know, is that not a fair criticism that, fine, you've got their attention, you've got some tough demands. Now tell them, here's this wonderful win-win. It's not that you're losing and I'm winning. 
Um, and, that, and that's where, what will get us to the deal. I think that's right. President Trump's been very careful to underline his good relationship with President Xi. I don't think he's gloated or in any way said something that would inflame the hardliners in Beijing. Uh, on the contrary, President Trump and his team have kept the 150-page agreement completely secret. There has not been a single leak of any of the text at all. But we can see our top negotiator it comes to Washington, Leo He, has written a lot himself. He's a famous economic reformer. He signed up to a very important report with the World Bank about 10 years ago called China 2030 for Reed. This is a plan for to reduce subsidies, to open the free market, open up China to much better financial conditions. If they want to maintain the commanding heights of socialism. But the debate has been over how much to let the market really open up. And Liu He and his side had been uh, disadvantaged because as President Xi fought to take over China in 2011-2012, he courted the hawks, especially on the economy and the military. So that I, th- I agree with Kevin. Politics in Beijing are very, very important. I think President Trump, frankly, knows all about this. Uh, Rana, so at the end of the day, you have the standoff. Both sides are inflicting pain on each other. There are people who argue China is hurting more because they, it is more trade-dependent. On the other hand, that's a dictatorship where where the United States is a democracy. It feels the pain more viscerally. Who's going to blink? You know, um, (laughs) I think in the short term, China has more pain to take, but they're also taking a long view. I was really struck by Xi's latest speech uh, talking about the plans for One Belt, One Road, how it's going to link up through Europe. You already see, by the way, parts of Europe, Italy, Greece coming into the Chinese orbit. So that economic diplomacy that China is rolling out is, I think, pretty sophisticated. And, um, and maybe Trump's mis- uh, mistake here was not to bring the Europeans exactly. I was in. just going to yeah. say that, and particularly mm-hmm. the Germans. I mean, you know, to be fair, as you said, Trump has some legitimate beefs with China, but so do the Europeans. And that was our big strategic mistake. What I'm watching now is where Europe's going to go, particularly as 5G and new technologies roll out. Are they going to buy from Huawei? Are they going to buy from Qualcomm? This is going to be big stakes economic diplomacy in the year ahead. Thank you. A fascinating conversation. Next on GPS, India's six-week-long election is finally over. When the results are out, you shouldn't be surprised to hear that accused crooks are among the winners. What in the world? I will explain when we get back. Now for our What in the World segment. The final polls just closed on the Indian election, the last stage of the largest democratic exercise in the world. Indian elections always feature dazzling statistics about size and scale, but here's an unusual one. According to data released this week, almost 20% of the candidates running are facing criminal prosecution. That's right, nearly one-fifth of India's potential parliamentarians are accused of a crime, according to the accountability watchdog, the Association of Democratic Reforms. Now, many of these are not jaywalking or parking violations. They include murder, attempted murder, kidnapping. The proportion of candidates who are embroiled in criminal cases in India has steadily increased since 2009. But what is really shocking is not that such candidates are emboldened to run for office. It's that historically, these suspected criminals tend to win. Almost one-third of the lower house's current parliamentarians are accused in criminal cases. In the last three national elections, on average, candidates accused of crimes have been almost three times more likely to win. Those are the findings of the recent book, 
when crime pays by the Carnegie Endowment's Milan Vaishnav. Now, I should be clear, criminal prosecution is not conviction, but Indian courts are so backlogged, trials can drag on for a decade or more, justice in India is slow-moving, and convictions are perennially deferred. The larger message is that India has long had a tradition of mixing crime and politics. Now, why does this happen? India is fragmented by its caste system. And in the past few decades, long-oppressed members of the lower castes have been gaining some power and voice. That's brought with it fresh ethnic tension. Vaishnav and his peers did a survey of 68,000 randomly selected Indians in 24 states and territories in late 2013. They measured Indians' ethnic bias against how likely they were to support candidates facing serious criminal cases. They found that in places with a high degree of ethnic tension, people were much more likely to support the accused in politics. You see, it seems that the more threatened Indians felt by the power of other groups, the more likely they would be to vote in a strongman from their side who might have run afoul of the law. This is a clear case of tribalism trumping the rule of law. Voters may know a politician breaks the rules, breaks the law, but there's a perception that he does this for their side. Does this sound familiar? A majority of Americans believe that President Donald Trump committed crimes before his presidency, according to a Quinnipiac poll released this month. That includes almost all Democrats, but also 17% of Republicans, a group which still overwhelmingly supports Trump. In March, one-third of Republicans thought Trump was probably guilty of a crime before he became president. Perhaps some of those voters look at Trump the way Indian voters look at their leaders. He may be capable of doing bad things, but he'll fight for them. Groupthink and tribalism can undermine the rule of law in a poor country like India or even in the richest land in the world. Next on GPS, from tribalism to liberalism, the liberal ideal is under attack from both of its flanks. You'll hear a full-throated defense from The New Yorker's great writer and thinker, Adam Gopnik. Almost 80 million people from around the world visit the United States every year. But there were two particularly notable arrivals this past week. On Monday, Hungary's far-right nationalist Prime Minister Viktor Orban was at the White House where the president called him a highly respected leader who had done a tremendous job. And on Thursday, Brazil's far-right nationalist president, Jair Bolsonaro, spoke at an event in Dallas. These two men and fellow travelers like Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin represent the growing global threat to the ideas of liberalism. But my next guest offers a full-throated defense of liberalism and says we need it now more than ever. Adam Gopnik's new book is A Thousand Small Sanities. Welcome, Adam. Thank you, Fareed. The book began, you say, after the election of Donald Trump, when you went with your daughter for a walk. On the night of the election of Donald Trump, she was shaken, not because there had been a change in parties in power. I would not have sympathized or uh, endured that for very long. Changing parties in power is a crucial part of liberal democratic values, left to right, right to left, back again. No, she was concerned about the specter of a kind of new authoritarianism, even a predatory authoritarianism that she hadn't been prepared for. So I took her out for read and we walked round and round our New York block for two or three hours and I did her absolutely no good. Um, she was texting all the time, hearing from her friends. 
But I made a mental memorandum to myself. I'm going to write a letter to my daughter about liberalism, trying to explain why the values that I had brought her up with and that I had inherited from my own father, who had taught them to me, weren't just uh, a family tradition, but that represented real, enduring, important values that had helped make the world a much better place than it had ever been before. So... First, to explain, when you talk about liberalism, you're not talking about it in quite the left-right party sense. What do you mean? No, I don't mean it in the sense of something that's owned by the Democratic Party here or by any one political party. I'm talking about the set of ideas, of principles, the whole temperament that's motivated liberal democracy and inspired liberal democracy, at least since the 18th century, and particularly since the American Civil War and the end of slavery and the beginning of all those great programs of emancipation for African-Americans, for women, for sexual minorities now, that whole great program of uh, reform and self-correction that inspires liberal democracy and its institutions, belief in uh, free speech, a belief in an oscillation of parties in power, a belief in education, in open education, and having uh, dissident ideas not just uh, allowed but welcomed and encouraged. All of that uh, set of ideas is what I mean by liberal democracy, and what I mean by liberalism, and it doesn't belong to any one party. So why do you think it's now under threat? Just again to explain, what is the rise of illiberalism that you see around the world? The illiberalism has always existed, and it's always threatened uh, liberalism. Liberalism, it's an interesting thing for it, almost always looks extremely weak at any historical moment. In the 1930s, with the rise of fascism and communism, everyone said liberal institutions and liberal democracy will be too weak to counter it. And many great intellectuals went either to the extreme left or to the extreme right. And they were wrong. Liberal institutions proved much stronger. And then in the 1950s, people said the same thing vis-a-vis communism. And, and then in our own time, in the 2000s, with the, uh, after 9-11, you heard many people saying the same thing. We don't have the discipline, the rigor, right. the ideological convictions. At every one of those crucial moments, it turns out that Liberal democracy and liberal institutions, even if they look squishy, even if because they welcome all views, they look uh, disorganized, turn out to be extraordinarily strong. That's very much what this book is about, why they're so strong. You describe as one of the shining lights of liberalism John McCain's concession speech to Obama. Explain why. Yes, because it's terribly important that we remember that liberalism and liberal traditions belong to no one party. One of the crucial And if you think about it, Fareed, astonishing, miraculous things in the liberal tradition, totally unknown to the rest of human history, is the idea that we can surrender power without vengeance and without feeling embattled. When John McCain stood up there on the night of 2008 and said, I honor the new president, I respect the people's voice, and I wish him nothing but well, and I will stand beside him, we take that somewhat for granted. He did it with particular eloquence that night in a particularly embattled time. Um, But that's a miraculous thing. That doesn't happen in human history. Uh, That isn't something that we should ever take for granted. And in that sense, John McCain's concession speech was a great moment in the history of liberalism. And you think that Trump does represent a threat to this? How can we deny that he represents a threat to it? Every day he tweets something. And it's not a question of where you stand on abortion. It's not a question of where you stand on what the Federal uh, Reserve should do about uh, interest rates. It's a question of every day someone, the president, tweeting something to cast doubt on the legitimacy of an election, to cast doubt on the basic legitimacy of his political rivals. You know, when Trump calls Hillary crooked Hillary, it's fine for him to oppose her. But to imply that his political rivals are 
criminals are in themselves illegitimate? Well, you know perfectly well, Fareed, that's what happens in autocratic countries. That's what happens in third world dictatorships. That's where if opposing uh, the party in power risks your livelihood and your life very often. We see that. That's the large history of mankind is a history of autocrats imposing penalties on people who oppose them. That's not the liberal tradition. And when it comes under assault in that way, we can say, well, it's just rhetorical. It's another tweet, but it's a very toxic and poisonous thing. Adam Gopnik, always a pleasure. Pleasure talking for you. And we will be right back. Last week, South Africa concluded its sixth national elections, 25 years after its first free elections. 17 million people cast their votes, and it brings me to my question. What percent of registered voters came out to participate in this year's election? 87%, 72%, 66%, or 58%? Stay tuned, and I'll tell you the correct answer. My book of the week is the one you just heard about, Adam Gopnik's A Thousand Small Sanities. Written as a letter to his daughter in the wake of Trump's election, the brilliant New Yorker writer has mounted a defense of liberalism, the philosophy of slow, incremental progress, opening up doors, fighting discrimination, all to secure individual liberty and dignity. Though it does not have the fire and brimstone appeal of radicalism, right and left, Gopnik rightly points out that liberalism has changed the world. The answer to my GPS challenge this week is C, Only 66% of the nearly 27 million people registered to vote in South Africa's election actually exercised that hard-won right. Turnout has been declining since democratization when 87% of the people turned out and overwhelmingly supported the party behind South Africa's liberation, the African National Congress. But recently, support for that party has also dropped. Historically, the ANC was South Africa's hopeful party, the one that promised change and equality, a better life for all, as their slogan goes. But the party hasn't delivered on that promise. The ANC's 25-year reign over South Africa has been awash with corruption scandals. Economic growth now hovers near 1%, and South Africa is the world's most economically unequal country, according to the World Bank, with that disparity cementing racial divisions. It's worse for young South Africans. Unemployment, already high at 27% nationally, is over 50% for workers under 25. While the ANC garnered the majority of votes again this year, it did so by its smallest margin yet. This is partly because the party has failed to truly overcome apartheid's legacy, making space for radicals on its flank. Just look at the rise of the Economic Freedom Fighters, a party that encourages anti-white sentiments and land redistribution without any compensation. I wish the best of luck to the ANC's leader, President Cyril Ramaphosa, in his quest to finally deliver on his party's original promises. After all, as Mandela is often quoted as saying, it always seems impossible until it's done. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.